0: Today, I'm finally getting to uh, what what I believe is the central passage for this whole series, Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40 talks about even youth shall faint and be weary, um, but the Lord renews the strength of his people. And so we're going to get to that passage. This has been, um, Isaiah 40 has been just... For me, waiting on God, that passage right there is is where I see it all unfold. You're going to see all the ideas we've already talked about in the past episodes come together in this passage. It's really cool. Um, And so, you know, everyone's waiting on God. You're waiting on God. I'm waiting on God uh, for something, for God to move, maybe just to be near to God. We're all waiting on God in some degree. Um, The problem is, as we wait on God, uh, we inherently lack the strength that, that we need to effectively wait on him. Um, meaning there's a there's a kind of spiritual inner strength required to effectively wait on him. And God promises to supply that strength. So God not only promises that he's strengthening us through our waiting, he not only promises that at the end of your waiting, you'll be stronger, you'll be more like my son, you'll be more mature. but Even like in the waiting period itself, God is supplying us the inner spiritual strength to continue waiting faithfully. So, you know, what God starts, he intends to finish. So if God initiated it, he's going to see it through. So the waiting period, as you're waiting on God throughout your life, and there's when there's heightened seasons of waiting, when there's just like these moments and these pockets of waiting on God, all of that is strengthening and developing you um, to be more like his son, to be more like who you're called to be, to be the truest version of yourself, you're becoming stronger, you're becoming more mature, you're becoming wiser. Um, So God is doing a lot in our waiting period. And so we need to learn how to wait on God at the pace he set for us. We like to dictate the pace of our life. We like to dictate how fast life is gonna move and how fast we're gonna go through certain seasons when it's God who sets the pace, the ideal pace for our life. And when you learn to wait at the pace of God, it makes things so much easier. It doesn't mean all difficulty is gone. It means it's just much easier when you surrender to the pace of God. And you say, I have an ideal pace for my life. I have a way I want this to look. And I have like a speed I'd like to get through this. But I trust your pace. Not only is that pace ideal for character development and transformation, but also for intimacy in my relationship with God and my relationship with people and, and helping me be able to handle what he's bringing me to. God's doing all that in our waiting. When we learn to wait at his pace, it's so much better. So go with me to Psalm chapter 37, verse 23 and 24. It's hot in here, so I'm going to turn on the fan. Otherwise, I'm going to die. Like Esau. Super dramatic, right? Give me some stew, Jacob, or I'm going to die. I can relate to that drama queen. Psalm chapter 37. Verse 23 and 24, hopefully the sound from the fan doesn't come through, it's not really that, that strong. Uh, it says, the steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. I believe another translation says that the steps of a good man are ordered. Um, the steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. In other words, what, <laughs> this, this goes back to the whole God sets the pace for our life and the pace of our waiting seasons. Sometimes we, and this just, you know, flew into my mind. Sometimes we think about past seasons of waiting on God, and we, th- when we think, whoa, the way that it looked back then, and the the pace that was set for me then, and, and how fast God did things then, is exactly the way He's going to do things now in this season of my waiting. And I don't think that's true. I think God has a variety of uh, ways that He works in and through our waiting seasons. Um, so there's just God is not. Uh, I guess this one dimensional God that's always going to have us wait the exact same pace, the exact same way, you know, some things stay true. Um, but different waiting seasons call for different things, including a different pace. Meaning I want to, it's funny. my, My son knows what the word pace means. I didn't know that he's six years old. Good to see you, Brittany on TikTok. She's here. Um, my son turned six last week and he just decided to learn what the word pace means. I don't know where. I don't know what, what he was watching, but we are talking about something and uh, he was asking for a toy and I said, you want this one? This one's really fast. Like you can, it, this, this, this remote control car goes super fast. He goes, ah, that, that, that car won't go at the pace that I want. I said, I don't think you know what that means. He said, no, I want a car that, that actually goes at walking speed. I want to be able to walk with my remote control car without having to chase it. And I thought, <laughs> you know what the word pace means? That's awesome. Okay, so you're looking for a car that actually goes at a speed that's according to your walking pace? Sure, here, how about this one? He goes, yeah, that one. In other words, he was just lazy. He wanted to just like strap my phone to that car and just like walk around the house blasting music. And, you know, that's the idea. Sometimes we can get, we can ask for too quick of a pace, too fast. We go, God, I just want to go get there, get through this faster, I want to get there quicker. Or I want you to slow the pace a bit. And you can get ahead of God, right? And end up going a little faster than he set the pace for your life. Or you can end up going a little slower. And God's like, can you keep, Can you catch up with me? Like, I, I'm the good shepherd. I'm calling you to, to be a part of what I'm doing. And you need to do a little more than just like, you know, crawl toward me. I need you to walk a little faster. And so the steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. This is key. This whole delighting. God delights in His way. Psalms talks about how uh, when you delight yourself in the Lord, He'll give you the desires of your heart. And so when I desire God ultimately, I'll end up desiring the things He wants to give me and he'll, He'll give me the treasures, the delights of my heart. And so when He delights in our way, we know that the steps we're taking are established by Him because we're most likely walking at His pace when He's our focus. Because He delights in our way. When I delight in Him and He's my treasure, He delights in what we're doing. God actually wants to delight in what you're doing. He wants you to walk in a way where He's pleased with it. And going, yeah, I want you to be doing that. I want you to be interacting with those people like that. I want you to be, you know, seeking reconciliation between your estranged family members. God delights in our way when our ways match up with His word and His character. And He promises that those steps are established. No, No random person can just claim this promise and be like, every time I do whatever I want, all throughout life, this is always true. God is always establishing my steps. The the idea is that he's, he's, he's solidifying them. He's concretely establishing your steps. He's bringing surety to your steps, you know, confidence. He's making sure there's ground for you to step out on. And he's, you know, ordering those steps when you're walking according to his way and seeking his face. Even though he falls, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. This is the idea of Judas. I think of Judas when he decided, you know, I've screwed up too much. I'm, I'm beyond saving, you know, and he ends up, you know, ending his life. He was cast headlong. He fell, and he split open. Pretty violent scene. Uh, the Lord upholds the hand of the people whom, and this is, this is the idea, man, um, It's the upholding. That's what it means when he establishes our steps, is he's upholding you. I should not expect God to uphold me places he didn't call me. I shouldn't God, I shouldn't expect God to uphold me and sustain me in environments and doing things that are contrary to his word and character. I don't know why I have a dry tickle in my throat. Go away in Jesus name. And so we need to learn how to continually seek the Lord, and go, I just want to be where you want me to be. But I also want to be moving at your pace. And I want to be seeking your face in the process. Because when, when, when this is true of our life, God goes, I will uphold and sustain your steps. And I'll clarify the steps as you make them. And he goes before us as the good shepherd. So, you know, this is where we find ourselves in Isaiah chapter 40. That we, in the waiting period, I wish it wasn't, I wish this wasn't the case. But when you're waiting on God, there is difficulty. There's sometimes added difficulty, and it's actually ordained, it's necessary. You know, it's actually to your benefit. And you might call it a burden, like I'm I'm waiting under a struggle, under difficulty, under something heavy. That's why I titled this sermon, Waiting Under Burdens. Because sometimes, the longer you sit under something heavy, right, the harder it is to continue sitting there. (laughs) the easier it becomes to just crumble under the weight of that burden. And the harder it is to like, endure and persevere under that weight, the longer you've been sitting under something. I think about the woman who had the issue of blood for 12 years in Matthew's Gospel and Mark's Gospel, and I believe in Luke's Gospel, I don't remember. But she's, been, she's tried all the doctors, she's tried all the medications, she's spent all her money trying to get better. And her issue of blood, that's, that's how it's you know, referred to, her issue of blood only gets worse. She's sitting under that difficulty, that sickness for 12 years. That'll wear on a person. That'll exhaust a person. And she becomes desperate, desperate enough to reach out to Jesus, risk him being unclean because of her blood, and yet he's the one who heals her and he makes her clean. That's the idea is how, how long can you sit under the burden, under the difficulty, under the struggle, and continue waiting? you don't have the strength to do that. Not without God. I inherently do not have the power or the strength to sit under any amount of difficulty for any amount of time without God sustaining me. Or if I claim to, I'll end up just responding poorly and missing out on what God wanted to do in that that struggle. You know, Isaiah 40 says, even youths shall faint like people in their prime. In their prime strength, in their prime age, in their prime maturity, in their prime bodily function, right? In their prime, you know, mental capacity, even youths shall faint and be weary. Young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary it doesn't mean there's no race to be run. It means the strength you're drawing from God sustains you to continue running so that any amount of length he calls you to, any amount of time he calls you to sit under the burden, he supplies the strength so that you can continue doing that indefinitely because you're tapped into a never-ending source. You're, you're, you're standing on a stable foundation that will never crumble, right? You're relying on a God who has no end. And so the strength he provides for you, as long as you keep relying on him, as long as you keep leaning on him, it will never run out. It's more than enough to get you through whatever burden you're under, whatever difficulty you're facing. They shall walk and not be faint. You ever been so exhausted you actually just fainted from hydration, from you know depleting all your minerals, from no sleep, you just fainted. You know, you exhausted yourself. I've reached like close to that point, but I've never actually fainted from exhaustion. God is the one who keeps you from that point. You might get close to it, and some of you feel that. You're like, I feel like I've been at the point of almost fainting for 10 years in my marriage, in my finances, in my situation with this addiction. I feel like. I am on the brink, like I'm one step away from collapsing, and I've been in that posture for years. That's some of you. But it's God who keeps you from that breaking point. You might get close. God doesn't keep you from getting close to the breaking point. He keeps you from actually breaking and collapsing. And the strength he supplies might be just enough for you to keep struggling. You know, I think of Colossians chapter 1. Let me take you there. I've got all these scriptures flying around in my head. Um, Paul says in chapter two of Colossians, it didn't change again, did it? Gosh darn it. I even changed it right before this. Hold on. This is just what we do now. This is normal. Okay, now you see it. Colossians chapter two. It says, listen, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. Paul's struggling for a church he hasn't, he didn't plant. He didn't plant the church in Colossae. Okay, somehow that that church got off the ground uh, with the help of a man named Epaphroditus. But Paul didn't actually plant that. So he's talking to people he's struggling for that he's never actually invested into personally, face to face. And for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. There you go. That their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together together. In love to reach all the riches of the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery. Uh, I think it's up here. Right here. Verse 29. For this I toil struggling. So you know what Paul's struggling for. You know who he's struggling for. He says, for this I toil struggling with all of his energy. Notice this energy is not his own. This is the energy, the life force, the strength of God. But the strength of God doesn't eliminate the struggle, does it? It doesn't. God, When we ask for strength, God, strengthen me. In our minds, we think that's going to take away the struggle. No, that's going to help you endure the struggle. <laughs> that's, that's not going to take away the burden. That's not going to take away the difficulty and the trial. That's going to give you what you need to endure through it and to stay underneath that as long as God tells you to wait for him. And so paul's going i struggle i'm toilet i'm this 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 includes exhaustion but the energy god supplies and works powerfully within paul allows paul to struggle effectively we think waiting on god means no struggling and we think walking with god means no struggling No like, you know, battling with weakness, no having my back up against the wall, no being under a burden, no being close to the point of exhaustion, quite the opposite. That's exactly what it includes. It doesn't mean there's no periods of like, ah, I'm by the still waters, or ah, I'm by the green pastures, or ah, when you struggle, you have to learn how to ask God for the strength to endure it rather than asking him to take it away. Because God's not our refuge away from the storm, away from the difficulty. He's actually our refuge and our stronghold in the struggling and the the warfare and all all that's going on around us. You think you can escape this world? You can't. But you can have a a sure foundation. You can have like a defense mechanism and a a sanctuary to run to in the midst of all the chaos breaking out. So Paul goes, I struggle. I struggle. And he supplies me the energy to effectively struggle. That's, if you could boil down waiting, that's that's what it is. It's I'm leaning on God for the strength I need to continue struggling until he sees me through. There's your waiting. And some of you don't like that. It ain't gonna change the reality that that's what God often calls us to. And so there's essentially three uh, things as we wait that I haven't really touched on yet. Okay. There are other things that we need strength for that I've touched on in previous episodes. Go watch those all about waiting today. This is episode nine. So we're nine weeks in this thing. There are three things that have come to mind for me that we need strength for as we wait. Number one, God strengthens us. According to Isaiah 40, those who wait on God, and we'll, we'll break down that passage even more, I promise. We're going to end exegeting. For those of you that are like, I love expositional preaching. Okay, fine. We're going to go verse by verse in Isaiah 40. We'll get to that. For now, go to Galatians 6. And the first point is this. God strengthens us to wait through the lack of evidence. To wait through lack of evidence. Meaning, while you're waiting on God, you don't always see evidence of his hand at work. You don't always see proof that things are moving forward. You don't always see how God is moving things out of the way for you to walk right through that valley. You don't see evidence of what you're waiting for. You don't see evidence of progress. You don't see evidence of movement. You don't see evidence of, are we going anywhere, Lord? Because I sure don't think it. I don't see anything. And Galatians 6, 9 flies into that situation to remind you, hey, let's not grow weary of doing good. Some of us have grown very tired, weary, exhausted of doing the good we know to do, and it just doesn't look like it's working, at least according to our definition of what works. When we go, success looks like this, all of us picture success a little differently. And so when we look at the word of God and he says, do this, what we're doing is we're looking for an idea of success that may or might not be true to the scriptures. So... Don't grow weary of doing good. Just because you're doing good doesn't mean you're not going to get weary. <laughs> it's the weariness that drives you to the throne of grace to see God in a way you've never known him and to go deeper in your faith with him that into a places you've never been and to know him in a way that rocks your faith for the better and that follows you for the rest of your life and it's to your benefit that you see that weariness starting to grow, and that exhaustion, it points you to him as you're doing good. Again, we think doing good means no weariness. No, the weariness is what causes you to look to him to supply you the strength to keep doing the good you know to do. Some of you know exactly what God's called you to do. You just don't have the willpower anymore. You've lacked, you lack the motivation. You've lost interest. You've grown exhausted. Because he keeps calling you to do things that seem to make life a little more difficult, right? And it seems to add a little more burden rather than taking away the key thing you're asking him to remove. It seems to be adding in these other dimensions. And what you don't see is the grand picture, the the beautiful mosaic of your life. You don't see it from beginning to end, he does. He actually declares the end from the beginning to let you know what's gonna happen not just at the end of our lives, not in a Calvinistic way, but at the end of human history, he's already won. And so we're not doing good hoping God might, right? We're doing good knowing that he will, but there are things that we're not sure if he's gonna do. Like I know generally, we talked about this last week, know the general will of God to navigate those unclear areas of your life where it's not so clear and you're not really sure if he's gonna provide the way you think. And you're not really sure if it's gonna happen as fast as you want. And you're not really sure if you should stay in that job. In those specific, you know, personal situations, in those personal situations, you gotta understand, it's the, the general will of God, what we know to be true, what is unstoppably true, and what can't be reversed, that helps us navigate what we're not sure of in our personal life. Okay, so don't grow weary. People get exhausted of doing good. I'm telling you, you'll you'll never regret doing the right thing. When, it, when God calls you to do something, you're not gonna look back and go, man, I wish I didn't do what God told me to do and I wish I wasn't faithful. I wish I didn't benefit other people's lives. I wish I didn't love like Jesus and lay down my life for the benefit of others. You're never gonna regret doing what God tells you to do. You will regret not doing what he told you to do. And sometimes weariness, that discouragement starts to sink in where it's like, Listen, buddy, I've been a pastor for 63 years, before you even were a thought, and I've been doing good. You know, I, I, can hear the, I can hear the seasoned saints coming out and chirping in. I've been doing more good than you could do in three lifetimes. Okay, but you've grown weary and you've stopped. That doesn't negate the good you've done. I'm just saying there's more and press in for that. Don't give up when there's so much more for you. Don't, don't get exhausted. Jesus does invite us. You know, he says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, burdened under specifically the standard of God that you can't meet and it should point you to Jesus who meets it for you. And he goes, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest for my my burden is yoke or my my burden is light and my yoke is, is easy. Something along those lines. His burden is also a yoke. The point is he calls you under his wings. He calls you to come and find refuge and security and confidence in what he's done. God knows you and I as imperfect people, we can't be perfect. It's, it's logically impossible. It's like in all reality, someone that is imperfect cannot be imperfect or yield perfect results. And so what God calls us to is to lean on Jesus, to trust in him, to believe in his life, death, and resurrection, which actually sets us free from sin. You know, sin is, um, uh, we don't always think of it like this, but this this is where the gospel comes in. When Jesus invites people, it's a gospel invitation. It's good news. It's not just, hey, life is hard. I can make it easier. That's not what it is. It's, hey, One day you're gonna stand before the living God and you're gonna stand under a yoke and a burden that you can't lift. It's called the perfect standard of God. It's called the law. You can't meet it. So Jesus comes to lift that for us and live perfectly since none of us ever could. And sin is inherited. It's passed down. It's an incurable, deep disease that humanity has. We're plagued with it. And God doesn't leave us without a solution or a cure. He calls you to lean on him for the cure and not try and develop a cure yourself. And so sin is this, it's inherited, it's passed down. You can't avoid it. It's a part of human nature passed down from our father. The very first person who sinned, Adam, has passed it down all the way down to humanity. Sin can only beget sin. And so we're in this perpetual cycle without Christ of a disease called sin. And the core of it is trusting self more than God. And not caring what God says, not caring what he thinks, not caring or even considering what he has to say. That's what sin is. That's the core of it. It's believing I know better than God. My feelings are more reliable than God. My intuitions are always right. Let me ask you this. Are your thoughts and intuitions always 100% correct? Are they always reliable? If the answer is no, then you're relying on something that is bound to fail you. You're navigating life by something very unreliable as opposed to the word of God, which is 100% verifiably true. You can spend a lifetime unearthing all the evidence in our world for that, and you can do that. But the point is God is calling you to rely on something that does not change. It's timeless truth. With every culture and every human era, all throughout human history, the word of God remains true. You can't you know, disprove what is objectively absolutely true all the time and so your thoughts and feelings aren't that imperfect people can attain perf- cannot obtain perfection and so jesus says come to me and some of you are doing good from a place of trying to do what only christ can do you're doing good thinking it saves you you're doing good thinking it keeps you saved You're doing good because you're afraid of God and you're not sure if you're going to heaven. You're afraid of going to hell, so you do a lot of good and it's not from a place of security. You can only do good continually when you're secure and confident that God is your father. You know, it's only gonna, for those of you that aren't even sure where you stand with God and you're not sure if your soul is his, you're not sure if you're a child of God, your your obedience and your good works will only go so far. Eventually, you're going to reach the end of yourself and you're going to have to deal with the fact that you're not even sure if Christ is sufficient to save you. You're not even sure if you're his. And so being able to do good and fighting through weariness starts with knowing that I'm his, knowing that he's lifted the burden for me, that he met the law in my place, that he took sin and human evil upon himself and he paid it in full. That on the cross, sin, human evil, was nailed to the cross. He paid for it completely. He died our death, the punishment we deserve. He took that. And he resurrected to life three days later after being in the grave, verifiably, medically declared dead. Romans were professional murderers. They were very good at killing. That gospel message, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus and the ascension of Christ. That's the only thing we can stand on to continue doing good. If you're standing on something else, and you know, I'm just gonna do good for God, why, to try and meet his, to be good enough? To gain his love and approval? That's not gonna last long. I, like, I can only do good because I know I'm his, And I know his love for me is of his grace, and he's accepted me and approved of me because of his grace, and it's all because of his son. That breeds confidence to keep pressing through weariness. It's knowing him and what he's done for me. In due season, we will reap if we don't give up. There's more for you to experience. There's more for, for, for you to have. There's more rewards. God is waiting to give. And it comes with every opportunity you choose to do good. There's rewards in heaven. There's even rewards temporarily here in this life that are actually like the, the result of us being faithful to him. And he goes, you know, what? let me bless you with this. Solomon didn't ask for riches, right? Solomon didn't ask for power, influence, Uh, He asked for wisdom, and God goes, man, you really asked for that. It was crazy. You know, I'm going to give you what you didn't ask for. So when we are doing good, there's so much you don't even know to ask for that God is intending to give you, and there's so much you have asked for that you're waiting for that you think, my obedience to God doesn't connect to any of the things I'm waiting for. And God's going, you don't have to see it, but trust me. As you keep doing good, there are things that you're making way for and plowing ahead, and God is making the way for you to get to what you're waiting for as you just follow the good shepherd. Follow him. Keep doing what he said. Don't give up. In due season, this is a promise. We're not banking our, our obedience and our, and our love for God on a, on a maybe. Like, I'm already his. I'm already safe. I'm already eternally secure. I'm already forgiven and righteous. We are all that in Christ if you're a child of God through faith. And so we know that in due season, we will reap what he has promised. So don't stop doing good. And that's not like, hey, if you don't do enough good, you're going to hell. That's not the point. It flies in the face of what I just said. We do good because we know we're his. We don't do good to become his or to stay his or to... Stay saved, right? We do good because we're his. So God strengthens us to wait through lack of evidence. You don't always see what's happening underground. You don't always see what God is doing miles ahead of you in life. We serve a God who is not just here presently in my moment, but he is the timeless, eternally existent one who dwells in eternity, he inhabits eternity, meaning he's in our past, present, and future, He's already where he's calling us. He sees the end of what you're doing. He's standing at the end of it. And then he's standing at the end of the next waiting period, and he's with you now. So the good shepherd isn't going, hey, let's keep walking. I think there's something around this bush. I'm not sure. The good shepherd's going, hey, let's move forward. But he's also on the other side saying, hey, come on. I've paved the way for you. I know how this all works out. I've made all the preparations. I put everything in place. I've made sure all the people's lives are ready and set for you to walk into this. I've made provision for this. Just keep walking. Just keep doing good. And you're going I, I am. I am I am being faithful. I am opening the scriptures. I am serving your church. I, I am resisting temptation. I am feeding the homeless and preaching the gospel. And I just don't see any evidence of what I'm believing you for in my marriage in my kids' faith and my own relationship, you know, with with my mom and my dad, in my finances, in my job, I don't see any evidence of it, and you don't have to. That's the point of what I'm trying to tell you, is if your obedience to God is based on seeing evidence that it's working, then it's conditional obedience. If God tells you to do something now, and he says, I'm not gonna tell you how it's gonna work out, would you still do it? Is it enough that he told you to, And is your love for God enough motivation? Or is his love for you enough motivation to walk through what you don't know how it will work out? You don't know what it's going to yield. You don't know the results of your obedience. Can you do it? And that goes at any given moment, God could call us to do that. He could. Most of the times, God (laughs) softly nudges me, even though I am so resistant to it. He'll nudge me to like minister to someone. It's like it's not even on my radar, man. I'm not even thinking about that. I'm just here to get eggs, cause I forgot we didn't have eggs this morning, and the kids are already hangry and punching their mama, and I got to get home to make it. You know, they don't actually punch their mama. I wouldn't let that happen. But the point is, they're going, they're going bananas, right? They're ripping trees down. I need eggs, so I'm, I'm just here to get eggs. Lord, I don't have time to minister to someone. He goes, and I, and in those moments, I'm like, I don't know how this will work out, though. That's what's scary. You know, I don't know if this guy has a knife on him and just end my life, you know? Looks like a kind guy. He has glasses, so that's non-threatening. But at the same time, like, what if, like, there's aggression and hostility and I push him deeper into unbelief? I don't know how it's going to work out. And sometimes I let that uncertainty creep in and the fear of what might happen and it causes me to not listen. Other times... I fight right through that and I go, you know what? I'm sure you're asking me to do this. That's enough for me. Abraham in Romans chapter four, he, uh, he waited for something that he saw no evidence of. In Romans chapter four, verse 18, it talks about waiting for Isaac, his, technically his second son, but it's gonna be his, in, a, in his family lineage, his firstborn, speaking of his status. So he's waiting for Isaac. God, this is, I believe, in between having Ishmael and waiting for Isaac, he gets this word that Sarah's gonna have the son. And in hope, he believed. What did he believe? He believed that God calls things into existence that don't exist. He has a word that Sarah's barren, dusty womb uh, is gonna give birth to a son. He believed God even against hope, meaning against all worldly reasons to believe that, he still believed. When he looked around at his life, saw a barren, dusty womb, saw his own 90-year-old self approaching 100, when he looked around and saw no evidence, and he's going, life is giving me no reason to believe you, God, he still believed that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith. And I believe this refers to when God specifically said, Sarah will have a child. This comes after Ishmael. When he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, he was about 100 years old. So he's pushing 100, this is after Ishmael. When he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, I'm not making it up, she had a dusty womb no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of god but he grew strong in his faith gave glory to god fully convinced god was able to do what he had promised now i know what you're thinking yeah but i don't have like a promise from god like that god didn't just kind of rend the heavens come down and be like hey you're gonna have this i'm banking on a maybe (laughs) i'm banking on a is this me is this bad pizza or is this god telling me to believe for this. I don't know if he's gonna come through. I get that. I get that sometimes what we're waiting on is not an explicit promise in God's word from his mouth, but it's an impression in our heart. It's a conviction, it's this, it's this sense that has been you know, confirmed through other people coming around and, and the scriptures I've been reading and my own prayer life and what I've been you know, learning. It's all coming together and I'm going, Lord, I'm trying to navigate if this is you or not. Here's what you can do. Know that God is able to do it even though you're not sure if he promised or if it's just you making it up, right? When there's no lack, when there is lack of evidence and there's no signs that God is moving anything forward, just believe he can and keep doing good. That's about what you can do. Hebrews chapter six, verse 15, talks about how Abraham waited, right? Thus Abraham having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Well, how did he wait? He waded through all the adversity and all the, all the things he saw in his life that screamed, you're not going to have a kid. Look how old you are. Look how old you are, grandpa. Look at your, your wife's barren womb. Out of all life was screaming, God won't. He can't. You won't. He said, I still believe what God said. Uh, you know, when the nation of Israel was called to walk around the walls of Jericho, you know, do you remember how many days... Let me know in the chat, how many days did Israel technically walk around the walls of Jericho? How many full days? Do you remember? How many full days? It was seven. Bro, put yourself in that situation. Here's another example of waiting without evidence. God tells Joshua, hey, walk around the walls seven days. On the seventh day, something's gonna happen. For the first six days, nothing. No crumblings, we don't see any walls cracking. We don't see any of the, 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 the Canaanites you know, falling off the towers and, and Joshua's like, I guess God's with us. People are just falling. You don't see any of that. You don't see a sign in the sky like, it's working. Just six days, imagine this. You wake up, you're a part of the Israelite army or you're a part of the priesthood And you're walking around the walls of an enemy nation that God said, I'm going to give you this. You walk around one time. Joshua says, shh, don't say a thing. And then you go home and you sleep. You're like, okay, weird. The second day, same thing. Walk around the walls again. Okay. Hey, God's up to something. Yes, he is. Amen. Praise the Lord, brother. Walk around, go home and do the same thing. You fall asleep going, did that do anything? Yeah, God's with us. He told, he said to do it. Third day. Fourth day. Fifth day. Doing the same thing. There's no evidence that it's working. All you know is your leader Joshua told you, God said on the seventh day of walking around, he gonna do something. You get to go back to your wife and your kids and let them know, we walked around the wall again did anything happen did you see any you know any of the enemy warriors just kind of falling getting scared no any of the walls cracking no are you sure it's working i don't know god said to do it sixth day sixth day walking around I know you said seven days, Joshua, but there's like, at least, could you ask God to like show us something? That this is actually profiting and it's going to amount to something? Seventh day, Joshua goes, all right, boys, raise the roof. They turn up the speaker volume and they blast their voices and the trumpets and they go ham, right? They're having the Israelite rave and the walls come down. Whoa. Did God show any evidence of progress along the way? He did not. He did not. He said, wait on me, keep doing what I told you to do. It doesn't seem to be working, like at least give me something to keep me encouraged. that's how some of you feel you're like i i have been raising these kids i have been faithful to my husband i have been showing up to work nine to five for four years straight and we're still in debt i have been waiting on you to give me a job and the debt's only piling up and i've been applying everywhere i can and no one's answering i've been trying to get with any christian woman who will take me at this point I, i my age range is now 40 i'll take anyone to just accept me i want to be with someone and you're bringing me no one lord and he's going keep showing up keep seeking my face And you're going, I don't see any evidence of progress. the, The story of Jericho and the walls coming down on the seventh day, that tells you all you need to know about the God that we serve. Is that we serve a God of the suddenly. Sometimes what's happening underground, what's happening ahead of us that we can't see, takes way longer than what we want. And we're quick to evaluate whether or not there's evidence and progress and results. And if there's not, we'll dip. And we'll give up on doing what God told us to do. Ah, maybe I wasn't supposed to be here. And God's going, no, you know deep down you're supposed to be here. You just don't think it's working. So you're about to give up. I'm telling you to be here. And God's reaffirming that with, with, his, with his word and with your prayer time. And as you fast, there's that there's that heavy conviction and and, and comfort that, yeah, this is where I need to be. But everything inside of you is saying, nothing's working. And God's going, if you would just wait, suddenly everything can change. All the investment you've made over the past years, months, decades, and all the the stuff God is doing underneath the surface you don't see can break forth out of the ground in, in a matter of seconds. And you'll see it all. And it's like, whoa. You've been growing a giant redwood underground and it just shot up at, yeah. You just didn't see it because the ground was in the way. Look how big it is. You're like, whoa, all that happened because I kept doing what you said and God's going, yeah, I told you. So God strengthens us to wait, even when there's no evidence that our waiting is working, at least according to the way we define working. And what we're believing for, even when we're like, ah, nothing, man, God's going, shh, shh. He won't say shut up because he's a gentleman, shh, just keep waiting. And we, we, we have already spent eight weeks talking about what it means to wait. The second thing is this, God strengthens us to wait through the temptation to shortcut the process. Not only do we, does he strengthen us to wait through lack of evidence where I'm like, I don't see anything happening. And you're telling me to do the same thing? Come on. The second thing is God strengthens us to wait through the temptation to shortcut. Because guess what? Your flesh, the world, the enemy will present you what you think is a shortcut around the process. And I'm telling you, to go faster than God's pace of grace or to go faster than the pace he's set for your life is to interrupt what he really wants to do in you he wants to do a lot more than just give you what you're waiting for he wants to do a lot more in you in your family in your unbelieving spouse in your kids in your neighbors a lot more i just had a conversation with my wife last night the same thing and i'm trying to encourage her man like we're we are waiting we're we're in a place where we are waiting for her mom to sell her house in California. We, we've been believing for our own house for years, for years. I have a six-year-old. I've, we've been believing for this since before he was born. And we've seen no evidence. Every time we think something's about to happen and we're like, this is our time, it just flops and ends up being a... It's, <laughs> it's disappointing, man. It's when you get the, the Chinese counterfeit product, the, the, the cheap version of the, the the dollar tree version of what you've been waiting for and you get it and it comes in the mail you open it and you're like this is not what it looked like in the pictures this is completely different this is green in the picture it was red what is happening all the colors faded this isn't even paint like this is what i can get from dollar tree that, that's that's kind of how it felt man just waiting and it'd be like yeah this is it nope that's not what we asked for lord and we're so we're waiting for a place to live we live with my parents and that can be frustrating, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a gift, I get it, like it's a privilege to have a roof over our heads, but the, the tension and the waiting and the pressure and the disappointment, it just builds. Especially when you have two kids, you wanna raise them a certain way and you want a certain environment for them and, and you're, there's a lot you don't have control over when you live in someone else's house. And so we're waiting, waiting, waiting. And her mom's house is on the market since like, I don't know, what, January, and um, she's finally getting offers, here we are in March, she's finally getting offers on, and she's going to help us, I didn't say that she's going to help us um, to put a down payment on a house, because I don't have, like, a a reliable, provable, you know, income, where I can go to a loan, uh, a bank, and go, hey, I can show you how much, I don't have, like, a, a reliable, especially not enough to, like, save for a down payment on a house so not only do we not have the finances out what i have i can't prove um just because of a number of reasons don't get all weird on me and so we're waiting on her to sell her house and she's going to give us a down payment and then that'll get us into a position where we could um start talking to people and get a place and we were talking last night and i was just like honey you i don't call her honey why did i say that my love um because she's all frustrated, like, I just, why can't it just happen, you know? And I'm like, oh, you gotta understand, like you're focused on the house, and you're focused on all the things that will impact you and your mom. You You don't see what God is doing to affect the people who are involved in this process, the people who will help her move, the people who will pack her stuff, the people who will buy her house, who are probably believing God for a miracle, and, and and you know they finally have a child, and they've been believing for years, and now they're believing. For, you don't you don't know who God is going to reveal His glory to through this process of waiting, and it's taken this long, and I've been here for years. All the people God is strategically going to touch through through us waiting this long, and your mom finally getting the right person to come and buy it. It it is so much better than just getting a house and moving on. If there's more people that can hear about the gospel, if there's more ways that the kingdom can be advanced through me waiting and struggling and fighting and it's taking longer, I will choose that over shortcutting the process. And this is what David's tempted to do in 1 Samuel 24. Remember David's anointed to be king in 1 Samuel 18. Well, in verse chapter 24, he's on the run. You can imagine, David's probably going, hold on, God. Like You anointed me to be king. Was that like a joke? Was that a joke? Because I'm running away from the current king of Israel who's trying to kill me. And it's been a number of years since I was anointed to be the king. And so there's a gap between David's anointing and his actual coronation when he ascends the throne, right? And so in 1 Samuel 24, David is running from the current king of Israel. He's hiding in caves, probably hungry at times, frustrated, confused, away from his home, possibly his family, around a bunch of knuckleheads that barely put their pants on. That's like his life right now. And now we have Saul returning from following the Philistines, and he ends up being in the same cave as David is. And Saul doesn't know it. So Saul ends up hearing that David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. So Saul, he's just laser focused on killing this kid. Saul took 3,000 men out of Israel and went to find David in front of the wild goat's rocks. If you guys are wanting to, you know, establish a restaurant, there's your name. He came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave. Not like by the way, but like by the way where there was a cave and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now this is funny because in the, in the Hebrew, it literally means to tend to his needs. That could be a number of things, fill in the blank. But he went in to relieve himself. I used to think this was Saul just like taking a dump in the, in the cave when i listened to this in church as a kid. I'd be like, ah, Saul's pooping. I don't think that's what's happening because David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. Imagine, they're just like, oh my gosh, it's Saul. Look at our luck. The men of David go, look, this is the day of which the Lord said to you, I will give your enemy into your hand. God did tell David, I will give your enemies into your hand. That's a promise. David's waiting. David's believing. But here's what the men of David say. This is the day. You should do to him whatever seems good to you. Pause. Proverbs 3, 5 through 7 says the opposite. There, you could picture his men there, as like, picture them as the serpent whispering in the ear of David, going, go ahead, now's your chance. Just like the serpent told Eve, you can become like God. This is the same situation. They're going, God told you he would give your enemy into your hand. Here you go, boy. Proverbs 3, though, says, look, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In other words, don't assume all of your thoughts, feelings, and intuitions are correct. Lay those at the feet of Jesus and ask him to direct you and submit those to him. In all your ways, acknowledge him. He will make your path straight. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. To trust God is to admit, I don't know everything correctly. I don't always see correctly. I don't always interpret situations rightly. So before I make a conclusion or interpret something or make a decision, I'm going to come to you, Lord, and say, you direct my paths. I lean on you, not my own wisdom. The problem is the men here in this cave are going, David, do what seems good to you. David stealthily arose. (laughs) So imagine the men are going, kill him. That's what they're saying. End him. We can end this whole thing right now. We can get out of this cave. We can go back home. You can ascend the throne. This is what God has promised, but it's not. This is what God promised, but the wrong way. God said he would handle David's enemies. David now has an opportunity to take that into his own hands and handle his enemy himself. This is not what God wanted. The men are going, this is what God wants. So David goes, all right he gets up like the ninja he is and he cuts off a corner of Saul's robe. Now here's why I'm not convinced Saul's just pooping here because I don't care how aloof you are, I don't care how unaware you are, I don't care how like you know spaced out you are. It if you're taking a dump, you're going to know when someone's cutting off a corner of your robe. So I think he's sleeping. Afterward David's heart struck him. Oh You can imagine like the anticipation building in the men, they're like, "Yeah, he's about to get him, he's about to end this! And he cuts off a corner, he's like, yeah! And they're like, oh no! Oh, David, you fumbled the ball big time, buddy, that's not what we meant. And David's going, oof, that wasn't right. Because he cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Now, the story goes on and Saul's going to end up coming to himself and go, that's weird. And walk out the cave, and David's going to go, Hey, Saul! He's going to go, That sounds like someone I know. He's going to turn around and see David, and David's going to go, Oh! And Saul's going to go, Ah! Oh, you got me! David had a chance to shortcut the process, he had a chance to accelerate the plan of God faster than it should have gone. Meaning, God goes, I'll take care of your enemies. David has a chance to take care of his enemies himself. Just like Abraham. God goes, I'll bring you a son. And Abraham goes, well, Sarah and I can make a son through Hagar. We can make this happen faster. We can do it, right? This is Eve. Going, "Ah, I don't want to rely on God anymore. I want to be my own God. I'll just take the fruit for myself. Ah, don't do that. It's going to ruin humanity. Yep, you ruined it. David here chooses This is the temptation in in every season of waiting is to get the right thing the wrong way. And if you get something the wrong way, it's the wrong thing. Or if you get something at the wrong time, it's the wrong thing. The right thing at the wrong time or in the wrong way is the wrong thing, period. Because God ordained for it to happen later when you could handle it or when you were set up to actually enjoy it or when it was the right time and all the pieces were in place and you tried to take it into your hands and it's more of a burden now, not a blessing. Jesus in Matthew chapter four, the devil comes to him, same idea, same idea. And the devil goes, hey, you know, you could jump off this temple here. Everyone would see you. In other words, you can prove that you are who you say you are to all these people finally get them to see evidence now hold on that's not the way God wanted to reveal his son it was by some you know magic trick oh look I'm I'm flying off the ground I jumped off a temple who what's holding me gravity nope he didn't do that he chose to go Lord you know best Satan twists the scriptures here and Jesus goes you know what You shouldn't put the Lord, your God, to the test. God intended to reveal his son in a glorious way through death and resurrection, not through doing some hat trick off a temple, right? So the convincing for the right people would come through the right way, the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. The enemy is essentially saying, you can can just kind of sidestep that whole death thing and just make it known right now, the center of Jerusalem, let everyone know the most religious people, the, the, the religious leader here. Those who are the, the, the most elite in, in Judaism, they'll see you and be like, whoa. And Jesus goes, ah, I didn't come to impress people. I came to save people. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trust in what my father's word says. I will not put him to the test. Second thing, Satan goes, hey, I can give you the nations, the kingdoms of the world. Now, I don't think Satan actually has the authority to do that. <clears throat> and he goes, I'll give you all these, just worship me. Well, Jesus is going to get the nations as the first resurrected human, the second Adam, he'll get the nations the right way. Like, as God, he already owns the nations. We'll see in Isaiah 40, the nations are as nothing to him, meaning their power, their strength, their might, it's, it's, it's a joke compared to God. So Jesus technically owns the nations. What he does not yet have as the first resurrected human, he, he, does not yet, he has not yet made a way for the nations to be a part of his divine family. He'll do that through dying and rising on the third day. So essentially, Satan is presenting a corrupted version of what God's going to give the son. And it's going to be the wrong way. And this is what happens when you wait. There's always these little, <clears throat> these little opportunities that look good. And, and, it, and, it, and it's gonna violate your, your, your values and compromise you know, your obedience to God. It's gonna cause you to turn away from God. It's gonna shortcut the process. And you're going, wow, I don't have to wait as long. And then you reach for it and you, un, you, know, you open the package and it's just a Dollar Tree counterfeit China version of what God actually wanted to do. And you're going, this was not worth it. And God's going, yeah, I know. When you rush into things, you get unfinished products. When you, when you try and accelerate things, you get a product that isn't ready to be enjoyed. Not to say like everything God wants to do is a, is a product, like we're entertainment-based. The point is, I, I want what God has for me in its complete form. I don't, I don't want in the middle of the assembly to be like, you know what, I'm done waiting, and grab it and be like, this is not at all. God's going, yeah, it was still developing. Why did you reach for it? You're not ready to enjoy it. You're not in a place to actually like let that be a joy to you. It's going to corrupt you. And now it's not even something that's a blessing. So I'm telling you, whether it's relationships or finances or just you you walking with Jesus or getting to your calling in life, the good shepherd will not call you to violate or walk out of step with the pace he set for you. There's a pace, and it's best that you walk according, and there's strength I need to be able to wait. Imagine, imagine whatever you're waiting for right now. Spouse, financial stability, uh, for your house to sell so you can end up moving out of whatever place you're like, this place is a hellhole. Whatever you're believing for, imagine, all of that stuff you're waiting for, someone presents you and they go, you can, like all this right now can be yours. Just like go against God's word and compromise your values. You can shortcut the whole waiting process. You can have it now. You can have it now. <clears throat> Having that would not be a blessing. You might think, oh, I don't know, like, I could have it now. I, I promise if God is not the one offering it to you, it's not sustainable. If, if it's not coming from the hand of God, it's not enjoyable. If people are making something happen and you're scheming and strategizing and tireless nights and it's my labor and I'm picking myself up by the bootstraps and I'm grinding, if it's all you, then it's not really gonna be um, something worth waiting for. Because what's worth waiting for is what only God can give. And so I, whatever it is, that temptation can be strong, man, when you're waiting and you're like, I don't know, that looks really good. Like I could have that now. Oh, and I can just avoid college and the four years of that misery. Oh man. Mm. I can get paid under the table and not have to report to the taxes and they get, you know, get, they get off easy too. And I get that, that internship without having to go through the two-year trade school. Ah, that looks real good. I can have a spouse right now who doesn't believe in God, but hey, I won't be alone. I'll minister to them. I'll evangelize. I'll make them saved. You're going to play missionary instead of wait for someone that God actually has for you? The last thing is this. God strengthens us not just to wait through lack of evidence, not just to wait through the temptation to shortcut. But also, he strengthens us to wait through our weakness. We're going to end in Isaiah 40 now. Now, our main text is this. They who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. But the whole chapter is beautiful. Now, if you've been watching this whole series, by now, you should be able to recognize the ideas that are about to be brought out in chapter 40. Isaiah 40 captures most of the ideas we've already talked about in the last eight episodes. You know, waiting in surrender, waiting in truth, uh, waiting with patience, waiting for God, all these different ideas. You're gonna see it in Isaiah 40. And I'm, I'm going to I'll be sure to stop and list it out clearly for you, but I want you to see this. God strengthens us through our weakness. We often see weakness as something to like run away from. And up weakness, don't want anything to do with that. Whereas scripture actually says, no, lean into that and recognize that that's a place where God wants to supply strength. Let that be one more reason to rely on him. Isaiah 40, it says, the context is Israel has essentially gone wow at least not from Isaiah's vantage point writing this but the prophecy he's giving god intends to restore israel but right now the the context is that they're in exile they've been kicked out of the land they're being their sins are being punished for 70 years right and so they're out in babylon they're out in assyria they're away from their homeland away from the temple of god it's been decimated and they're wondering, is God done with us? Man, thought we were the chosen nation. And Isaiah gets this prophecy from the Lord. And God says, comfort, comfort my people. The context of all this is comfort. Don't miss it. It's not judgment. It's not condemnation. It's not penalty. It's not rebuke. We've reached the point in Isaiah's prophecy where on the timeline of Israel's nation, Israel as a nation, we've reached the comfort that comes after all the judgment and all the punishment and all the exile. So God says, "Come for my people. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended. This is, well, her iniquity is pardoned. She's received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins." Why does God remove Israel from the land? Well, number one, the land needs an opportunity to rest. Number two, um, Israel's punishment for their iniquity and idolatry and continual rebellion and unbelief and killing the prophets, all of that, the punishment is that they are exiled from the presence of God. Sound familiar? And so now we get to verse three. So verse one and two, Israel's sin has been dealt with. Praise God. This is why I said the gospel message that we stand on, the foundation of our life, of our soul, of our eternity, of our everything, the gospel knowing we're forgiven, knowing we're secure, knowing our sin is atoned for, knowing that we have a sacrifice and a savior who can't be stopped, all of that allows us to wait faithfully. Because those things don't change. I'm always forgiven, I'm always righteous, I'm always a child of God, I always have a savior and an advocate. And all that beautiful truth allows me to wait. Verse 3, a voice cries in the wilderness, John the Baptist, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. This This is Isaiah or God through Isaiah, right? And eventually John the Baptist saying, hey, prepare to see the glory of God. And we already talked about this in previous episodes that when we wait on God, we're making preparation and we're positioning ourselves to actually receive a a fuller measure of his love or receive a greater revelation of who he is or or to receive clearer vision of his glory. While we're waiting, we're, we're, we're moving things out of the way and making preparation so that we're ready to see him. At the end of our waiting, in our waiting, and so John the Baptist is going out saying, hey, we'll see this in Matthew's gospel. Messiah's coming, get ready. And their preparation will look like repentance, changing their minds, jumping in the Jordan River to you know, proclaim loyalty to the coming King. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill will be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places will become a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all the flesh, all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. We've already talked about how at the center of all our waiting is just, I want to see more of him. I want more of God. I want to be closer to him. I want, I want to know his glory more. Okay. So verse six, now verse six through eight, you're going to see that man is not as reliable as God and God's word is more reliable than people. We've already talked about that like two episodes ago. So a voice says, cry, and I said, well, what do I cry? All flesh is grass. All its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. And the grass withers and the flower fades. But, but, the word of our God will stand forever. Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not. That's why Matthew 7 is an invitation. Hey, come and build your life on the word of God. Come and build your life on the foundation of Jesus. Come and build your life on a tested, true, certain foundation that won't crumble, won't change, won't adjust. There's no chance it'll fail. Come build your life on the word of God. It's sure. It's true. It stands the test of time. It doesn't It doesn't ever prove to be wrong or false. The word of God is true. It stands forever. People fade, culture fades, philosophy fades. You know, everything that we see in this world, Jesus says will fade. But what the word of God produces and those who stand on the word of God and the word of God itself, more reliable than people. So don't run to people. Build your life on God's word. And if he calls you to people, and if he brings people, use the help that he's providing through that. Verse nine says, go on up to a high mountain. Now you're gonna see that God shepherds his people. We saw that, I think, two episodes ago as well. That I can be content because he's my shepherd and he's leading my life. Go on up to a high mountain. O Zion, herald of good news. He calls Jerusalem a herald of good news. Think of the angels that come to the shepherds right, the night of Jesus' birth, and the angels come as heralds of good news, saying, he's here, he's here, go find him. Later, and they're gone. That's the idea, Jerusalem is a herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, and O Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift it up. Fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold, your God. Behold, the Lord comes with might. And his arm rules for him. I believe this refers to Jesus. Just my little speculation. Behold, his reward is with him. His recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. So essentially, they're saying, get ready. The shepherd's coming. The good shepherd is coming to surround his flock and defend them from all the enemies and just deal with the lions and the bears and all the enemies that come against the flock. He's going to deal with it all. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. He's leading, he's carrying, and he's gathering. That's the good shepherd we serve. Verse 12 through 17, we're going to see the focus is on, hey, God knows everything (laughs) and he can do anything compared to the nations. The nations are as nothing. Their strength, their money, their influence, their power, it's nothing. All human power and intellect and reasoning and influence and authority, all humanity combined not even a drop in the bucket. And this is important when you're waiting because you can really start to think that people are your hope. I just need the right influencer. I need the person who's at the top of the chain. I need them to come through. I need them to notice me. And God's going, oh boy, you don't get it. Look at verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? you take the sum total of all the earth's waters and God's going, you know, to anthropomorphize God, the hollow of his hand, is how he measures that. It's just to magnify his greatness. Who has marked off the heavens with a span? I just like from finger to pinky, he's just measuring the heavens who has enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure. All the dust the earth has to contain. It's like he has a little jar for it. Who has weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured, I think this is a poor translation, directed the spirit of the Lord? What man shows him his counsel? The answer for all of this? No one. Now we forget this. When someone with influence or someone with money or someone with the right connections comes to us, someone with the right in and the right power and the, the right job opportunity, and they're presenting us an opportunity to shortcut God's process and to compromise our values and to ditch God. And we're going, hmm, look at what they have. And God's going, can, can they count the dust of the earth? Can they hold the oceans in their hand? Can they mark off the heavens with, the, with just the span of their hand? Can they measure the hills and the mountains in just a little balance? Can they direct the spirit of God? No. So why would you go and lean on them? Why would you go and trust in them as ultimate? Doesn't mean you can't trust anyone. It just means why would you look to people ultimately and go, I just need the right people. I just need enough people. You know, God's gonna do things through people in your life. I'm not saying be a lone wolf and isolate yourself, but I am saying stop being so obsessed with people being your hope, and people being the answer to your problems. Whom did God consult? Who made him understand? No one. Who taught him the path of justice? No one. Who taught him knowledge? No one. Who showed him the way of understanding? No one. The nations, I didn't make this up, are a drop from a bucket. Yeesh! Whoa! there's some pretty powerful nations out there with some pretty strong technology that can blow up the earth in a matter of seconds. And God's going, yeah, compared to what I can do, it's a drop in the bucket. A drop from a bucket. They're accounted as the dust on scales. In other words, they amount to nothing. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon wouldn't suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing. So when you go, I just need people, I need the right opportunity, I need them to, all the people on the planet combined with all they have to offer, I got this power, I got this money, I got the influence, I got this technology, I got got this mind, I got this philosophy, all of it combined. God's going, yep, not impressive. Not impressive in the least bit. Before him, there as nothing. They're accounted by him as less than nothing. Now, let's, if God is this, the author of smack talk, you don't want to play Madden with God. You don't want to play Madden 08 or Madden 2019 with God. You don't want to play any game with God because he will smack talk you into the dust. I mean, that, that is some savage language. He's, he's roasting the enemy nations to a crisp. It's one thing to be like, yeah, there has nothing. It's another thing for God to go, they're less than nothing. Think of nothing and you're like, I guess I could mentally kind of imagine nothing, but I'm not, not really there and God's going, yeah, less than that. You know, <laughs> that's, that's where my, my brain stops. It's just emptiness. Dude, <laughs> God's a savage. They're less than nothing. And we're taught by culture and we're trained by the enemy to think the opposite. We bring God down to the level of the nations and beneath them. Pfft. When you're waiting on God, He has the power to suddenly, instantly, in a moment, change everything. Okay? Don't be playing anything with God, especially Call of Duty. Isaiah 40, 18, it says, To whom then will you liken God? Now, what you're about to see is God is not just another option. We already saw this uh, in previous episodes that when you're waiting on God, what you're saying is God is not just another option for me. He's not just a backup plan. He's not just one among many gods. He's my only hope. Okay. So what you're about to see in verse 18 through 20 is that God is not just another option among idols. There's no backup gods. What likeness can you compare God with? An idol. Okay. Well, an idol, a craftsman casts it. A goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. In other words, you trust in idols, you trust in false gods. Yeah, those were concepts. Those were material things made at the hands of people. In other words, they're the product of people, whereas people are the product of God. God creates man, and man can only create garbage (laughs) apart from God. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that won't move. I just need someone to help me make an idol. No idols. God's my everything. Verse 21 through 26, you're going to see that God can do what no man and no nation can do for me. No amount of people's efforts can save my soul. No amount of people can declare me righteous in the sight of God. No amount of people can atone for my sin. So God comes down and he does what no one else can. It's the same in every other sphere of your life. As you wait on him, you go, only he, only he can do what I'm believing for. Verse 21, it says, do you not know? Like, do you not hear? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understand, understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. Its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Now, what's ironic about the, the Exodus narrative, when you read about how the Israelites are out there and then they send spies into the Promised Land and they come back and they're like, we're like grasshoppers compared to these giants. And God's going, you have not seen me. When you compare yourself with people, you'll either be bigger or smaller than you actually are in your own mind. When you compare yourself to God, you'll see yourself appropriately. People are like grasshoppers compared to God not just in size and stature and strength and intellect and wisdom, but just in like all reality compared to his greatness. And that's, what's beautiful about him calling creatures, us that are made from the dust. And he breathed life into that. He calls us into his divine family. And he says, I want to give you my son's inheritance. I want to make you my own. I want to clothe you with robes of righteousness. And you're going, whoa, compared to you, I'm like a grasshopper. And he goes, that's, That's the point. It it magnifies my greatness and my grace. And when I choose the the small things, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain. You have curtains in your house? You just let everyone look in your windows. If you have curtains, you know what this looks like. Just opens those things. Boom, the vastness of the sky. Boom, the vastness of the universe. He spreads them like a tent to dwell in. He brings princes to nothing those who have the most worldly authority and power to execute, to, to to click that emergency button, to make it happen, he brings them to nothing. He makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely are they sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth. When he blows on them, they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. This is how strong And how powerful and how capable our God is. And I know you're going, I know this, I know this, I know this, but I'm waiting to see this power. Well, just know that what you're waiting to see is still less than what he could actually do. We have an idea of how strong God is, how capable, how wise he is. That's still less than (laughs) who he actually is, man. To whom will you compare me? God says that I should be like him says the Holy One, lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, And because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Now we get to our text about waiting on the Lord. And before I do get to this, We're going to pause for a quick commercial break so I can go potty deal with it. If you've not already done this, go to AboveReproachMinistry.com. We have a bunch of free resources that are made available to anyone around the world, completely free and accessible to anyone who wants to learn how to read the Bible. We have free online Bible study courses that will teach you how to read the Bible. We have free study devotionals that walk you through specific patterns and keywords in the book of Ephesians. We have free Bible study worksheets. We have Bible study workshops. We have all this free content because of generous supporters like you guys. And if you want to support this ministry, we're teaching people. How to read the Bible so they can live and teach the Bible themselves, and there are a bunch of ways to donate. You can go to aboveapproachministry dot com slash donate. You can give through debit or credit card. You can send a check to Peelbox Box three three eight uh, Green Cove Springs. You can give through PayPal, Cash App, Venmo patreon and then you can also get some church merch if you've not already grabbed some church merch I would recommend you do that so you can represent Jesus on your body and all the proceeds go right back into this content so that we can reach more people and equip people to you know live and teach the Bible themselves and if you didn't know this I actually have a book I've published a book it's called fruitful and the point of this book is to be a resource to the church to teach people um, the essential keys for the most abundant Christian life this side of heaven and so in this book what I do is I I outline the gospel absolutely clearly (laughs) so you can actually know what the foundational truth is. And then from there, we discover what our purpose is, what our process is, and what our position is now in Christ. So if you are a new believer, or if you're a believer that really wants to understand what I believe are the essential key truths that a lot of people don't understand in the church, I would grab a copy. And if you haven't already joined our online church, get in that online church. We have a lot of cool stuff happening, events every single day pretty much. Uh, we're in there praying and fellowshipping and gathering and growing together as a community. And the last thing is this, if you haven't already checked out our podcast, uh, we have podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcast, and everywhere else where you can get a podcast And pretty much all the content on YouTube, the live streams, what we do is we um, make that into podcast format so you guys can just listen on the go. So go check that out if you have not already. And let's get back to the video. Hear that commercial break. All right, Isaiah chapter 40. Let's land this plane. Isaiah 40, verse 27. In light of all that, we got Israel... And he goes, why do you say this, Israel, Jacob? Why do you speak this? And this is what Israel says. My my way is hidden from the Lord. My right is disregarded by my God. Israel is essentially saying, does God even notice us? Does God God even care? Does, Does he know about our distress and our suffering and our struggling? You know, Israel, they expected God to do something that he wasn't doing. Protection, salvation, and they're in exile. What's going on? Well, they expected God to give them what isn't found outside of his will. So they can't expect the protection from God while living outside of his will. But they did. This sounds like Psalm chapter 69 verse 3. The psalmist says, I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. With waiting. That's how some of you feel. You're growing tired, exhausted, just kind of done waiting, so you've kind of given up on that idea and you're moving on to something else. Well, God probably won't do that or he can't, so I'm just gonna believe for something else or I'll just, I'll I'll occupy my time with something else or I'll dedicate myself to something else. And you can get tired waiting on the Lord. But here's how God answers, okay? I would encourage you guys not to expect the strength of God while living outside of his will for your life. And this doesn't mean God is not gracious to intervene at times and interrupt those seasons of like us wandering But the point is when I like feel entitled and demand all the blessings of God while I'm like living in sin and doing everything contrary to God, why would I expect God to give me what is found through his word? When you build your life on the the word of God, 2 Peter makes it clear that the blessings of God come through a growing knowledge and application of his truth. There's more joy by knowing his word and standing on it. There's more hope, there's more comfort, there's more strength found by doing what he says is good. But when I do what God says is bad and wrong, why would I expect protection and strength to keep doing the wrong? God's a good father and will actually allow us to sap ourselves of all strength that we have and exhaust ourselves and deplete ourselves so that we realize and we come out of the funk of, how did I get here? It's because I wandered from the Lord. Verse 28, have you not known, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. He's the creator of the ends of the earth. Guess what God does not do? This is very important. You see the contrast between the enemy nations and people who grow tired and weary and exhausted versus God who does not. He has infinite strength, infinite energy, infinite power. He never runs dry. He's an infinite source. He says the Lord is the everlasting. He doesn't grow faint or weary. His understanding is unsearchable. You can't fully know the depths of God's understanding. It is, it, it'll break your brain just thinking about it. He does not grow faint or weary. And that's important to know because Israel had not been living with God as their source. They were living outside of God's will. They were living in disobedience and rebellion and idolatry and sexual immorality and unbelief and that cut them off from the strength and the power God supplies. So God has enough to be our source, he does. The problem is we live life leaning on other things and drawing from other sources. When God's going, I can give you endless strength, endless energy, endless power to do what I've called you to. And so what you need to understand is you and I, throughout our lives, but especially in our waiting, we are only as stable as our foundation or we're only as strong as our source. What is the source that you look to? What is the hope? Where do you put your hope and your trust in? What do you lean on? What do you run to? What do you stand on? This is all essentially the same question in different ways. What is your source? Your source of hope and strength and comfort and joy and peace. What is your hope? What is your foundation? What is your source? And if it's not God, then it's an unreliable and not just an unreliable source, but a source that will dry up. Just like Israel has, has reached their end. But think about it. They have reached the end of themselves. They're in, they're in exile. And because of that, all their strength has been sapped. Their hope has been just crushed. And now they're, real, they're coming out of their, their delusion. It's like they're coming out of their zombified funk where they're like, Why were we not walking in the ways of the Lord? Let's get back to that. And that's what the waiting period often does. Sometimes the waiting period can be a consequence for your decisions. Other times it's actually, you know, because of your faithfulness. But regardless of the reason, the waiting period should draw us to him. And so verse 29 says he gives power to the faint and to him who has no might, he increases strength. He increases strength. Being weak is not the same as admitting weakness. We are all, without God, we are all weak. Whether you admit that or not is a different thing. And then there's another layer, which is once you admit that weakness, that's good. But what do you do with that weakness? Who do you run to for strength? How do you try and compensate for that weakness? How do you try and gather strength to make up for that weakness? Is it yourself? Is it people, is it money, is it your influence, is it your hobby, is it your gift, is it your mindless video game for hour and hours? What is it that you uh, run to for, us, for that, that extra kick to keep going, that strength? This verse tells us that us and Israel, um, that what God makes available to those who acknowledge their weakness And to those who acknowledge their inability and depend on God, this is what God gives. He gives power to those who are faint. Second Corinthians 12 is a great scripture to go to when it comes to this idea. Paul's here going, "Mm, I got a lot of weakness. (laughs) I got a messenger from Satan to harass me. He's a thorn in my flesh. And he goes, three times I pleaded. This is not just praying. This is pleading, begging. Lord, please make this leave. Some of you have been praying that. Please make this leave. I'm begging you, I'll do whatever it takes. Just take it away. However you want. Just take it away. And God doesn't go, all right. He goes, hmm, you don't see it. But my grace, it's sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. If I remove that weakness, you have one less reason to rely on me and one more reason to get an ego and be prideful. And that will make you fall harder than the struggle is that you're under right now. The fall from pride is far worse and just something you don't want. It's far worse than the burden we find ourselves under when we're waiting. And so God spares Paul from that arrogance and pride and ego that would destroy him by keeping that weakness around, by keeping that need barely supplied or that need unsupplied at the moment or that, 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 that temptation from leaving. But he gives you the strength to escape. He gives you the strength to resist. Whatever the, the thorn is for Paul, we don't know specifically what it is on purpose. I believe the Lord's intentional about that. But he's going, the the weakness is not the focus. It's the power God supplies through that weakness. The weaknesses in our lives, uh, think of weakness as those situations or things in our life that we have no control over, that we can't change, that no one can except him. Those areas in our lives where we're back up against the wall, we're helpless, we can't change. If it's sickness, persecution, disease, famine, whatever it is, okay? It's the circumstances of life that I can't change and do anything about. Those weaknesses, God actually uses as like an access point for his strength. He goes, I will perfect my power in that weakness. And Paul goes, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly. I'm happy to boast about my weaknesses. So the power of Christ may rest on me. Why does God exile Israel? Not only as consequence, but for their good. As a nation, as a national entity, their future can be one of redemption and salvation and peace if they go through this momentarily for the next 70 years. To bring them in. To bring them back into the fold. Even youths shall faint. And again, this is people in their prime. The best you have to offer. All of humanity, At their best, still grow faint. You'll still reach exhaustion and be weary. Young men shall fall exhausted. But the contrast here is strong. The contrast is strong with this one. They who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. Meaning human energy and strength eventually runs out. All of your conniving and scheming and connections and resources and finances and wisdom and ability, it eventually gets depleted. And when that happens, you're left with nothing, which points you to the one who has everything. So they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. It's a re-energizing. It's charging up. It's plugging your phone in every night. Why? Because you use it throughout the day. Some of you guys got to charge your phone every hour because you don't know how to close Instagram. You don't know how to close your apps. Ayo, close your apps. You can have longer battery. This is the idea. It's waiting on the Lord is re-energizing. That is charging me for whatever he's bringing me into. And God says their strength will be renewed. They will mount up with wings like eagles. This is like flying and soaring and God exalting his people, above whatever they're going, lifting them up. They shall run and not be weary. Are you still running? Mm -hmm. Are you growing weary? Yeah, you're reaching that point, but you won't reach the point of depletion or exhaustion or falling on your face because he is the one supplying you never-ending strength. They shall walk and not faint. God ensures that those who wait on him that the nations who wait on him, that the communities that wait on him will have constant renewed strength. And as that strength depletes, it fills right back up. As that, we used to, uh, in video games, like early in the PS2 days, you guys know what I'm talking about. We had game sharks, PS1, PS2, even like, I think GameCube. We had game sharks for our Game Boy. You could, in any video game where your health usually depletes, it would never deplete, man you could like, it would run out and it would just fill right back up. Run out, any, any damage you take, I know I'm, I'm showing my hand here as a nerd, but any damage you take, the HP goes down, fills right back up. That game shark saved me a lot, of, a lot of damage. That's the idea. As you take hits, as you walk with God, as you go through trials, that strength depletes, he fills it right back up. God is the game shark for our life. He really is the cheat code. They shall mount up with wings. They will not grow faint or weary a person in their prime living in their own human strength is still weaker than a than a believer who lives on the strength of God so as we conclude we serve a God who is enough he not only supplies enough he is enough and we should be more excited about him than we are about what God is doing or the fruit he's producing or the movement we're making or the things that are being given. We should be more excited about him, he's enough. We serve a God of the unexpected where sometimes we're waiting for something and then what he actually does looks completely different. Like at the core, it still maintains a bit of what we thought but then you know the rest of it is like, I did not anticipate this God, this is way better than what I thought you were gonna do. And we also serve a God of the suddenly. Sometimes what's happening underground that we can't see takes way longer than what happens above the surface that we do see. You know, we are um, obsessed with quick growth and quick results all at once. And what God does is sometimes those results happen so fast after not seeing things for a long time. And our God can do whatever he wants, however he wants, whenever he wants. But are you waiting on him? That's the question. Are you waiting on him? I'm gonna leave you to be honest and really bring that before the Lord and think through that honestly. Don't be lying to yourself. Am I really waiting on him? If you guys did not know this is Above Reproach Ministry and you can find everything about this ministry Um, At abovereproachministry.com, we have a bunch of free resources, Bible study courses, um, free devotional studies if you just want something to read throughout the week. I wrote a book called Fruitful. Um, We have a free online church. Come and join the community, like open 24 hours a day if you're looking for a godly community to supplement maybe your, your current community or you're just looking for like, I just need people who love Jesus and I want to be around them as much as possible join our Discord community. The app is called Discord, download it, or the link is in the YouTube description below. And so um, you can find all the links that I'm about to give you in the description below. Uh, My book, Fruitful, my first book, Um, our podcast. So all of these videos we put on podcasts, Spotify, Apple podcast. We have a second podcast called ARC, Above Reproach Church Podcast, um, where essentially we do follow-up conversations that are more specifically applied to the local church and you as someone who is a part of the local church and how to function as a member of the local and global church. Um, So that's pretty dope. I would check that out if I were you. Uh, You can give to this ministry through PayPal, Cash App, Venmo. Send a check to um, 338 Green Cove, P.O. Box 338 Green Cove Springs. Um, Go to com slash donate and you can give through debit or credit card, all those different ways. Check, Patreon, buy some merch, all of that is there. I think that's it, I said it all. You can also watch the last eight episodes of this series all about waiting on the Lord. And I hope this blessed you, I really do. Um, We're gonna jump in a voice call on Discord, just to think of it like a Christian Zoom. (laughs) We're just gonna gather and pray and talk through the scriptures and and, um, talk to each other in fellowship. If you're looking to be sharpened and encouraged, come join. We're gonna be in there in about 13 minutes. Uh, So just click the link in the YouTube description Um, or click the Discord icon on my YouTube channel, or you'll find the link anywhere, really. It's in my link tree on my profile or on my channel. So join our Discord, jump in, get in the game, and come have fun. All right, I'll see you guys later. Keep moving towards Jesus, and I love y'all.